Amen. Good morning, Life Church. I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. I hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 together this morning. Together we're looking at what's commonly called and, and rightly called the parable of the unforgiving servant, which in, is in Matthew 18 verses 21 to 35. And so grab your Bible or a Bible app on your phone. And in just a second, we're going to jump in to that passage. Now, often when we do this, um, I spend the first few minutes uh, thinking of like a clever illustration or idea that can kind of invite us into the main idea of the sermon for the morning. Um, And this is a passage of scripture where I feel like that is just completely unnecessary because the illustration that Jesus uses when he tells this parable is so poignant and powerful that it can't be improved upon. It's just perfect as it is. And so we're going to jump right in this morning because I want to let Jesus' words speak for themselves. We won't have to work hard this morning to understand the main point that Jesus is teaching us through this parable. What I think we will find is that it is exceedingly difficult to live in the way that Jesus calls us to live through this parable. And so that's why I want to pray as we begin this morning. Um, But before I do that even, I just want to add, like, I was reminded this week by how sweetly and severely the Lord has used this passage, even in my own life, even recently, just as I came back to it again this week and and spent time studying it and thinking through what we would communicate from these verses. And I was just reminded again of how the Lord has used this passage to, in really incredible ways, break my heart open and exposed to me patterns of sin that were blind, that I was blind to, and to renew my delight in my affection for Jesus and for his gospel. And so it's been in light of that that I've been so eager uh, to be with you today and to share these words with you today. And so let's pray that the Lord would give all of us humble hearts and attitudes before his word today, that he might probe at each of us in the way that I know he longs to and desires to. Pray with me, church. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in us right now, giving us the humility that we require to truly hear the words of Jesus. We pray that you would give us hearts that are soft to these ideas, these teachings, these words. We pray that we would not be uh, walled off by pride or bitterness or resentment in any way. We pray instead, Lord, that we would be ready to hear from you and that we would be ready to respond to the teaching of your word with obedience, with worship. We need you for that, Spirit. I pray that you'll move in us now. In Christ's name, I pray all those things. Amen. So in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, that's the parable that we're studying, the parable of the unforgiving servant, Um, That's preceded in verses 15 through 20 by Jesus teaching his church how they should respond when a Christian brother or sister sins and refuses to repent. And so that's important that we recognize that verses 15 through 20 teach us how the church is to respond to a Christian brother or or sister who sins and is not repentant over that sin. Verses 21 to 35, the parable that we're looking at, teaches how the church is to respond 
to a sinning Christian brother or sister who desires to repent. And so verses 15 to 20, they teach us, we won't get into it, but Jesus teaches how the church should be gentle but very firm with unrepentant sinners in their midst. Verses 21 to 35 teach us how we should respond to repentant sinners in our midst. All of that gets set up by a question that Peter asks Jesus in verse 21. I call it a confused question. Let me show you why. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So why is this a confused question? I want to start by giving Peter some credit. Um, He comes to Jesus, and I think his desire here is really sincere. The Jewish rabbis of Peter's day and Jesus' day, they taught that when your brother sinned against you, you were required by the law to forgive them three times. And so Peter comes, and he says, should I forgive them? Seven times, more than double what the conventional wisdom of his day taught. And so I think Peter here, he has a really sincere and earnest desire to be merciful, to be forgiving. But Jesus, he points out that Peter's question is confused because Peter's caught up in in how many times to begin with. That's why Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And by the way, your translation there, it might not say 77 times, it might say 70 times seven times. The Greek of the New Testament at this point is a little bit unclear, and we're not exactly sure what number Jesus has in mind. That's okay, because Jesus' point clearly is that we shouldn't count to begin with the number of times we've forgiven someone. He's teaching us that we shouldn't have this checklist on our refrigerator where every time somebody sins against us, we're checking off the number of times we've forgiven that person until finally we get to the point where, you know, like vengeance is ours and we can exact revenge upon that person. No, Jesus is teaching us that we should stop counting and start forgiving our brothers and sisters when they sin against us and seek to repent of that sin. It's clear that that's Jesus' point because of the parable that he tells beginning in verse 23. He tells a parable. It comes in three scenes. The first scene is a scene of a debt forgiven. Let's read it in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's just pause right there and talk for a minute about a 10,000 talent debt. Now, in the Greek and Roman world, um, nobody printed money, right? Currency was basically precious metals. And a talent was the largest unit of that currency. A talent of gold, which is probably what Jesus has in mind here, was roughly equivalent, depending on who you ask, to between 75 and 100 pounds of gold. So a talent of gold is, is really a massive amount of gold. Jesus here, he describes a 10,000 talent debt. I mean, it's a huge amount of gold. But more practically, what did that mean? Well, we can do a little bit of math, and perhaps you're not interested in doing math this morning. Don't worry, I've done it for you. The most common unit of currency in Jesus' day was the denarius, one denarius, was the equivalent of the wages you would earn if you worked for a day. Now, one 
talent of gold, it was roughly equivalent to 6,000 denarii. So 6,000 days wages is one talent of gold. Do that math. One talent of gold was equivalent to 20 years work. 10,000 talents, the, the debt that Jesus describes here. Well, it's a debt that would defy comprehension or even imagination, right? The money required to pay this debt is the kind of money that an average laborer, it would take him 200,000 years or 60 million days in order to pay off that debt. And so the main point here is that no one hearing this parable could ever conceive of paying a debt like this. I mean, in modern terms, you would have to be Bill Gates or some Middle Eastern prince with a huge oil company behind you in order to conceive of paying off a 10,000 talent debt. And that's absolutely Jesus' point. This is an unpayable debt. Because it's an unpayable debt, the servant couldn't pay it. Verse 25, and since he, the servant, could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. But the story's not done there. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Now, that's a stunning picture. And Jesus could have stopped right there, and this would have still been a very moving parable. I mean, Jesus right there in the first scene of this parable is making a very moving statement about our sin and about God's grace. He's saying that in our sin, we're in debt just like this servant Right, we're not in $10,000 of debt or $100,000 of debt, but we're in like a gazillion dollars of debt. All of our work and all of our effort to repay that debt, it would never amount to more than just a drop in the bucket compared to the debt of our sin. That's Jesus' point here. He's saying that spiritually speaking, we are completely bankrupt with no hope of ever being able to claw our way out of our debt and into good standing with God. And of course, that's, that's a bitter pill to swallow. But it's the bitter pill that we must swallow because it makes the good news of the gospel just so sweet. It helps us to see how good and gracious God is. It helps us to understand all that Jesus did in order to pay our gazillion dollar debt to God. Because the good news of the gospel is that just as the sum total of our sin is so great that it cannot be fathomed, the sum total of God's grace and mercy are even greater. I mean, we could never repay the debt of our sin, but Christ paid it in full. At best, we would have been like this servant, pleading for patience, hoping to find some way that we might earn our way back into the master's good graces but the master forgave all of our sin. This is the essential message of Christianity, friends. Our debt to God is massive, but he has paid it freely through his son. The first scene of this parable, it gives us such a beautiful and clear picture of what Christianity is truly all about. And, and I say that because I'm very aware of the fact that you might be watching this live stream this morning 
And you might not be a believer in the gospel. You might not be a believer in Jesus. You might not consider yourself a Christian in any way. And I think it's important for you to to understand what it is exactly that you are rejecting if that's how you describe yourself this morning. Right? Sometimes we're confused about what Christianity really is all about. A lot of people, they confuse Christianity with moral majority right-wing politics. A lot of people confuse Christianity with an anti-LGBT agenda. A lot of people confuse the God of Christianity with a genie in a bottle, somebody who's eager to come to us when we need him and to give us our best life now. But the God of Christianity isn't a genie in a bottle, and the core message of Christianity isn't any of those things. The core message of Christianity is that God has paid our debt in full through the perfect life and precious blood of his son, Jesus And when we trust in his saving work by faith and repent of our sin, he will satisfy our account. He will reconcile us to himself through the work of his son. And if our parable stopped right here, we could see that and savor that and celebrate it together. But Jesus doesn't stop right here. He still needs to answer Peter's question. And so he keeps going with the second scene. This is the scene of a debt enforced. Keep reading with me in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, there are two things I want us to consider in this second scene. The first is the debt that this second servant owes. It's a debt, Jesus says, of 100 denarii. Earlier, I said that a denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. And so a 100 denarii debt, it's a pretty significant debt, right? This isn't the kind of change that you would leave lying around in your couch cushions. Or at least, if it is, then I think I should come over to your house and sit on your couch for a while. This is a big deal, right, this debt. It's not a small, insignificant number. It's not a trivial sum at all. But the point is that it does not compare to the debt that the master has forgiven. Right, if we were to describe the debt that the master has forgiven as the distance between the earth and the sun, this second debt that the second servant owes, it would be described as the distance between your couch and your fridge. By comparison to that greater debt, it is insignificant. The second thing we need to consider is the attitude of the first servant. Look at verse 28, especially where Jesus describes that. He says that that first servant, he went out and found one of his fellow servants. That implies that he was looking for him, hunting him down so that he could demand his money from him. It says that he seized him and began to choke him. Jesus, he intends for this to seem just absurd to us. I mean, as lavish as the king's kindness and grace was to this man, his own pettiness and greed with his fellow servant is just unimaginable. And Jesus wants us to feel that. He wants us to feel some righteous indignation like this isn't right. Because then when we feel that way, We're ready for the third and final scene of this parable. It's the scene of a judgment 
revisited. Read in verse 31 with me. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And friends, if Jesus were to stop right there at the end of verse 34, I think we'd all feel pretty comfortable with this story, wouldn't we? We'd feel like it painted a picture of justice. We'd feel good about that picture of justice. We would feel like this first servant got what he truly deserved. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds, verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Limitless forgiveness from the heart. Not seven times, not 77 times, not 70 times, seven times. Limitless forgiveness. Or else, the Father will do to us what the Father, the King, in this parable does to his servant. Imprisoned until his debt is paid. But remember, friends, it's an unpayable debt. Prison, in the parables of Jesus, it's almost always a picture of hell, of eternal punishment. And so Jesus is saying that the man who fails to show forgiveness will receive that eternal punishment. He will be punished until he pays an unpayable debt. He'll be punished forever. That's the very clear teaching of this parable. This parable teaches us that those who are unforgiving will not, in the end, be forgiven. This parable is teaching us that there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Those who have genuinely received the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus, their hearts will be transformed in a way that they are forgiving people. Not that they can forgive, not that they might forgive, but they will forgive. That is a condition of their new identity in Christ. That's a reflection of the fact that they've truly received the grace of God to begin with. Those who appear to be Christian, but in reality fail to forgive others, well, they may seem like believers now, but in the end when Christ returns, the words that he said in Matthew 7 will apply to them. Jesus said there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day he returns, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is teaching us. Those who fail to forgive from the heart now, they're not truly forgiven now. And that is then the primary application of this parable. Just as it was absurd for the first servant to hunt down and choke the man who owed him money, given the way his massive debt had been forgiven. It's absurd for one who knows 
that his sin has been forgiven, who knows that the gazillion dollar penalty of his sin is paid in full to withhold forgiveness from his repentant brother or sister in Christ. There is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. As I said earlier, the teaching of this parable, it's clear. Obeying the teaching of this parable is a very different story. And so in the time that I have left with you this morning, I want to just lay before you and me three lies that we tell ourselves that keep us from obeying this parable. Here's the first one. We often tell ourselves the lie that bitterness is safer than forgiveness. Now, we live in what a lot of people have called an age of outrage. Right? Ours is a culture that rushes to judgment anytime anyone is accused of any kind of wrongdoing. As a, as a people, we tend to be slow to listen and quick to condemn. And that's especially true. That tendency is especially strong when someone wrongs us or sins against us. Perhaps in your life that someone recently has been your spouse or your child or your parent. Perhaps in your life recently that someone has been the person who's usually sitting two rows in front of you in church. But anytime someone sins against us as Christians today, like if they do the wrong thing or if they say the wrong thing or if they fail to do the right thing when we really needed them to or they fail to say the right thing when we really expected them to, Anytime that happens today, we take that offense and we put it on like armor, right? We wear their offense against us the way that a medieval knight would like wear a shield, right? We put it up as a wall of defense against that person. We take the way they've sinned against us and the bitterness we feel because of the way they've sinned against us and we use that to defend ourselves and then even occasionally we use that like the way a knight would use a shield to take their feet out from under them when we can't, right? That bitterness, we just put it up to defend ourselves because we're convinced that it's safer to remain bitter against the person who sinned against us than it is to forgive them. We, we know that if we forgive someone, we have to let down our guard against them. We know that if we truly, genuinely forgive someone, we have to risk getting hurt by them again. And so it just feels safer to us to remain bitter. And that leads us to live in this place where we walk through the motions of forgiveness and reconciliation, but we don't actually forgive. Now, in truth, there are two problems with this particular lie, with the lie that bitterness is safer than forgiveness. First, Sometimes in life, it it does seem to us from our limited vantage point that it's genuinely better to just move on from a relationship after someone hurts you. We chalk that up to irreconcilable differences. And that's why marriages end. That's why people move from church to church to church because they get hurt. Relationships with people get messy and they feel like it's just better and cleaner and safer to leave those relationships behind and move on into new relationships. The hard work of reconciliation, it just feels too risky and too unsafe. Bitterness feels safer. And so we just move on from relationships. But the first problem with this is that we end up inevitably 
carrying that bitterness with us wherever we go. Right? When we refuse to forgive someone, we carry our bitterness against them into our new relationships. And so our past hurts, they begin to shape the way we respond to present and even future hurts. Because the second that new relationship starts to go down the same road that the old relationship went down, and it inevitably will because the relationships that we're in are with other sinners like us, then we begin to react the same way that we reacted in the past. If bitterness was our response then, bitterness becomes our response now. And we find that we can't ever leave that bitterness behind. And so we just burn through relationship after relationship after relationship because we never actually learn to forgive. We never actually learn to reconcile with someone else. And so we wind up lonely and isolated and angry and bitter. And brothers and sisters, I hope you know that is not safer than forgiving someone. It is not safer than being reconciled with someone. In fact, it's the surest way to make yourself miserable in this life. But also, Jesus tells us here, it's also not safe in the life to come. The point of Jesus' parable here is that in the life to come, bitterness isn't safe. He's telling us that there are grave, eternal consequences for those who fail to forgive. He's telling us that the wrath of God actually burns hottest against those who have tasted the forgiveness that he offers in his gospel and refuse to extend that same forgiveness to others. He's warning us just of how dangerous it is to our own souls in addition to the life that we live on this earth. If we fail to forgive others, if we prefer bitterness to forgiveness, it can destroy us in this life and in the life to come. Bitterness, it's not safer. It's not better than forgiveness. I pray that you wouldn't believe that lie today. The second lie that we believe, it's the lie that forgiveness just costs too much. And forgiveness is always costly, right? Even if we receive forgiveness freely, that doesn't mean that forgiveness is free. In truth, forgiveness is never free. When you forgive someone, it costs you in at least two ways to forgive them. First, you have to forsake the right to punish them for their offense. You have to let go the argument you have against them. You have to let go of and release them from whatever punishment you think they deserve because of their sin against you. But then secondly, and this is the key for many of us, you actually have to be willing to take on their debt yourself. You see, because forgiveness, it's, it's never free. Somebody always pays the price for it. I mean, just for example, let's say that you need it, and so I lend you my minivan. It's a pretty sweet ride. I mean, it is, after all, a minivan. And you're cruising west in a street in my Honda Odyssey and driving a little bit recklessly, and you do something to roll my minivan, and it's totaled. Well, I can forgive you for that. But forgiving you for that doesn't magically put a new minivan in my garage, does it? No, I'm going to have to pay to replace that minivan. And so forgiving you for totaling my sweet ride, it's going to cost me something. And the same way forgiveness, it's never free. There's always a price to pay when we forgive people. And when we forgive people, we invariably pay that price ourselves. And that just feels like too much for a lot of people. I mean, it's one thing to let somebody off the hook, 
for what they have done that has wronged you. It's another thing altogether to put yourself on that hook in their place. This is why C.S. Lewis just very famously said, he said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Because we recognize that forgiving people, it costs us. We don't get to hold them accountable. We pay the price ourselves. But we should realize that Jesus did exactly that for us on the cross. He not only cleared our sinful records, he endured the punishment our sinful records demanded. He not only cleared our accounts, but he paid our entire debt to God himself. He endured the physical punishment of the cross. He endured the emotional and spiritual torment of the Father's wrath. Jesus, he counted the full cost of our forgiveness, and he paid that cost himself. Now, in life, friends, I know that the injustices we suffer, they very rarely feel small to us. The pain that we endure when someone sins against us, it is real pain. That's why I think it matters that the second servant's debt in this parable, it's a hundred denarii debt. I mean, that's a big deal still. Three months' salary, that's, that's a lot of coin. Right? It's not the kind of debt that you just write off and ignore and forget, typically. In the same way, the sins that we've endured when others have sinned against us, the debt that is there, the price of forgiving those sins, it's a real price. But it does not compare to the 10,000 talent debt against our Father that has been paid by the blood of the precious, spotless Lamb of God. He was tortured and tormented for us. He was crucified and cut off for us, all so that he might pay our bottomless debt. And we can set our eyes on him and find the love and the mercy that we need in order to forgive our brothers and sisters who sin against us. We might think that forgiveness costs us too much, but it does not when we consider the forgiveness that we've received in Jesus. There's the third lie. It's the lie that I can forgive you without moving toward you. Often we deal with hurt and pain and sin by building walls. Like we might go through the motions of forgiveness and reconciliation we don't, after that, give people the opportunity to rebuild trust. We hold them at an arm's length, and we find that we never actually let them back into relationship with us. Now, I want to acknowledge today that there are some situations where that caution is right and good. I mean, reconciliation is not always an overnight process. Sometimes reconciliation takes months and even years before trust and security are rebuilt in a relationship. I'm thinking here especially about relationships that are marked by abuse or infidelity or neglect. But the reality is for most of us, for most of the sins we've endured in our lives, a reluctance to renew or restore a relationship that's been damaged by sin that should really be a warning sign to us. The way we relate to those who have sinned against us, it really should be a window into our own souls 
allowing us to see the true condition of our hearts. Because reconciliation is always the aim of forgiveness, isn't it? I mean, God did not forgive us in some cold or impersonal way. He forgave us so that he could be in relationship with us. He forgave us so that we could become holy saints and citizens of his kingdom. He forgave us so that we, become, we could become his adopted sons and daughters seated at his dinner table. He forgave us so that we could become acceptable dwelling places for his Holy Spirit and so that we could have eternity with him in his presence, in relationship with him. I mean, God, he did not forgive us and then hold us at an arm's length. He did not forgive us and then say, oh, you again, I'm so frustrated by you. No, he forgave us and then welcomed us in to sweet and intimate fellowship with him forever. In the same way, if we are genuinely forgiving people, when we forgive someone, we should move toward them in relationship. Because those who have received mercy from the Lord, they'll show true and genuine mercy to others. Those who are truly forgiven by the Lord, they'll be forgiving people. I mean, there is just no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Don't believe the lie that you can halfway forgive someone, that you can forgive them, but not move toward them in relationship, because that's not truly, genuinely forgiveness. Now, church, for the better part of the last 20 years, I've had the holy and sweet privilege of standing or sitting in rooms like this one, usually not talking to a camera, but talking to a room full of people, trying to lift up before them and lay before them the truth of God's word. And and that is one of the deepest joys of my life, the fact that I've had so many opportunities to share the truth of Scripture and to point people to the gospel as it's revealed in Scripture. It's just one of the things that I can't believe that the Lord allows me to do this. And often after I do this, when, when the room is full and it's emptying, you know, back in the season when we're able to gather, we'll, we'll see this again. But when the room is full and it's emptying, often after I've unpacked Scripture for people, I've had someone come up to me and say something like, wow, Pastor, That was really a great message. I'm so grateful for it. These people really needed to hear that. And when I hear that, I I smile, but I grimace on the inside because of, of those two key words, which you heard, I think. These people. My prayer for you this morning, church, is that as you think about this parable and these realities, my prayer for you is that you wouldn't be thinking about these people. My prayer for you is that you'd be thinking about yourself, the state of your own heart, the condition of your own soul. I pray that this parable would be a very clear and pure window into the realities of your heart. Do you see hints of bitterness, patterns of unforgiveness in your life? Are you holding on to anger over someone else's sin? Do you imagine the ways that you wish you could tell certain people off for the sins that they've committed against you? Are there things that you just can't let go of and and won't let go of? I pray that these things would be a window into your soul today. And then I pray that through that window, you'd see yourself and look to the cross and to your massive debt that was forgiven there. 
pray with me, church? Jesus, we thank you for paying our massive, unpayable, gazillion-dollar debt. And we pray that as we set our eyes on it and on the love that you demonstrated for us there in forgiving us when we could not earn or deserve your favor, I pray that that would move us into lives that are gracious and merciful with our brothers and sisters. I pray that because of the forgiveness we've received, you would move us to be forgiving people. We pray that in your precious name, Jesus.